My name is Ron Spellman, and I'll be uh, reading our scriptures for today, found in uh, Luke chapter 12, verses 49 through 53. I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that it would already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great in my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to get peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather a division. For from now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. You ever read that and just get thankful that it doesn't say son-in-law against mother-in-law? I heard that amen. So we, uh, we live in a world with a level of access to information that is unprecedented. Never in human history have we had this level of access to information as we do now. But not only do we have access to information, now we have access to opinion. And there is a tremendous, tremendous amount of pressure, especially on social media, for us to give our opinions. We want them. We collect them. We, we love to collect and see what people's opinions are. I think... I think there is this general assumption, individually, that we think people actually care what we think. But I have, I have, a, uh, I have a, made a, an observation of, of a goofy phenomenon in our culture. I don't think they actually care what you think at all. I think they are looking for an opportunity to have an opinion about your opinion. I think that's where we are as a society. As a culture, we love to sort ourselves out. We want to know what group people are in so we can either say they're with me or so that we can cancel them all together. If, if you think I'm wrong, I, I respect that, but I would ask you to take a journey with me and get in the weeds for a minute about the Israel and Hamas conflict. Now, is he going there? Yes. Now, this is a hot topic right now. This is a hot topic. One of the questions that's being asked is, who started this conflict? This is a real discussion that's being had across the world. Who started this conflict? Did Israel start this conflict uh, over 150 years ago when, when the Zionist Jews started to move back to Israel? Did Israel start the conflict by the way they've treated their enemies ever since the formation of their nation? Did the Arab world start this conflict through their consistent opposition to the Jews settling in Israel? Did Hamas start it over, over the last couple of decades as they have uh, inflicted terror attacks uh, rather consistently um, on Israel? Or was it finally the events of October 7th that started the conflict. So, since we're talking about opinions, I'm going to give you my take. All right? It is my belief 
that terrorists should be stopped and eliminated. I fully support Israel's right to defend itself. Now, I've done my best to educate myself on the conflict, and I believe that Hamas is a terrorist organization and will continue to terrorize all people that they have con uh, contact with until they are eliminated. And it is my belief that we as Christians should be praying for both Jews and Muslims to find Christ because it is the only hope for peace that we have. And I will add this. This is not the first time that Israel has been in a bind as a nation. So, we should not assume that because Israel is in the center of the geopolitical stage, that the end of the world is near. Okay? I also don't think that we should assume that God is fighting for Israel or that they have some kind of divine protection over themselves simply because they are Israel. Here's what I mean. Let's look at history. Think of the Assyrians. Think of the Babylonians. Think of the Greeks. Think of the Romans. Think of the Germans. Israel loses a lot. Okay? So we should not think that just because it's Israel that God is fighting for them to win and preserve them as a nation. He promises to preserve a remnant of his people. Okay? We as Christians should not be looking for the political deliverance of the Jews. We should be praying that they, like all who are lost, should find Jesus as the Messiah. That's what we should be praying for. They do not need a political leader to save their land. They need a spiritual savior to forgive them of their sins. That is what they need. Now, some of you are sitting there and you're going, what is he doing? Why did he say all that? Now, I share this opinion for two reasons. First, I think it's important for us as Western Christians to keep our head on straight when it comes to the end times and the fulfillment of prophecy. All right? I will say that we are absolutely in the end times. Right now, we are in the end times. But we have been in the end times since Christ's ascension. Okay? So we are in the end times. So might this conflict signal the actual beginning of the end? Sure. Maybe. Just like all the other conflicts that Israel has been involved in may have signaled the beginning of the end, except they didn't. You guys see what I'm saying? Okay? So history would tell us that a war in Israel is not a guarantee that the actual end of the world is coming now. So that's one thing I want to do. I just want to give you that sense of peace or clarity that just because Israel is involved in a, the, at the center of the geopolitical world does not mean that today is any more likely to be the beginning of the end than yesterday. Okay? Other than the fact that we're just closer to the end in time. Now, the second reason I shared this opinion is to illustrate a point. The moment you establish a position on an issue, you are by default being divisive. Let me say that again. The moment you establish a position on an issue, you are by default being 
divisive. Now, let me just put that into just our regular, everyday run of the mill life. I am a Chiefs fan, which means I hate the Raiders, right? So to make that decision is to be divisive. I prefer Canes over Chick-fil-A. Oh, yes, I am not alone. That is a divisive statement, okay? Coffee over tea, chocolate over any other dessert. Right? The second you make a statement, you are being divisive. There were those of you who, when I said the word Keynes, went, ugh. You know what I mean. The second you make a decision, you're being divisive. So to paraphrase the, the Bible commentator James Edwards, indecision does not divide. Decision divides. Write that down. Indecision does not divide Decision divides. Today we're going to look primarily at Luke chapter 12, verses 49 through 53, and we're going to see that Jesus calls his disciples to be all in. Jesus is teaching us that he is the Messiah, and he is calling us to be completely committed to him at the expense of everything else. At the expense of everything else. I want you guys to get in the Wayback Machine, and I want you to think back way before the summer. Back before we did our, uh, we took our summer break and looked at the life of David. We were in Luke chapter 11. And back in May, one passage that we hit pretty hard was Luke 11, verses 17 through 20, where Jesus addressed the accusation that he was uh, casting out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. And Jesus clearly states that this is not the case. And so as, as Jesus was talking about this, he forced, he forced the crowd to make a decision. He essentially gave them, or gave us today, one of four options in regard to Jesus' miracles. First, we have the option of just seeing this as a legend and it's all totally fiction. Second, uh, that Jesus tricked the people and there wasn't actually a miracle, he just made them think there was. Third, it was a supernatural miracle, but instead of happening by God, it happened by demons. Or fourth, that Jesus was who he said he was, and these miracles were a sign that he was divine. Now, as we looked at chapter 11, we saw that Jesus is making it plain to all those who would hear him that there is no room for neutrality when it comes to Jesus. We have to make a decision. Either we are in or we are out. As we come to our passage today, we're actually only a few verses from this controversy. Even though it's been months for us since we studied Luke chapter 11, our passage today is in the context of this kind of a division from Luke chapter 11. So as we looked at Luke chapter 11, Jesus was forcing us to make a decision about who he is. And the second we make a decision about who Jesus is, we become Divisive. Like Edward says, indecision does not divide. It is decision that divides. So let's go ahead and look at the passage today and see what Jesus is teaching his disciples. Let's look again at verse 49. Jesus says this, I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that were already kindled. came to cast fire on the earth and wood that were already kindled. Do you ever want to like, 
Think about the, the verses that are put on t-shirts. Why is this one not on the t-shirt? Right? Like Jesus is not messing around when he says this. This verse comes on the heels of Jesus talking about uh, being constantly vigilant and waiting for the coming of the kingdom. So think back to last week and think about the three groups of people that Jesus was addressing last week. There was the general unfaithful people. All right, These were people who were lost and they make no pretense about being uh, followers of God. They exist completely outside of the master's house. Then there were two groups that were inside the master's house. There were the unfaithful servants who we found out were no servants of the master at all. And then there were the faithful servants of God who truly love and follow the Lord. Now, the unfaithful servants abused the others in the master's house. They act selfishly, and they took advantage of things in order to get the best for themselves. So when we look at verse 49, we should hold uh, we, should, we should see three things coming out of this little verse. We need to remember where we were last week, and then we need to see these three things that come out of this one little verse. All right, so first, let, let's look at it again. He says, I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that it were already kindled. So when we look at this verse, we should see the wrath of Jesus on those who abuse his little flock. So as Jesus is talking about those who are inside the house who are abusing the real servants, we, we come right on the end of that where Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth, wood that it were already kindled. So we should see this as Jesus' wrath on those who abuse his precious little flock. We should see that, that this coming fire, this is the second thing, is Jesus' longing for justice. It's an announcement of wrath, and it's Jesus' longing for justice. And the third thing we should see from this one little verse here is that uh, this same hour of justice and judgment is reward for those who believe. It is reward for those who believe. When Jesus says here, would that it were already kindled, we should see Jesus' eager anticipation for the aspect of his kingdom that had not come yet. Now remember we've talked about this as we've gone through Luke. There is an aspect of Jesus' coming kingdom that was, his kingdom has come, in the past, his kingdom is present, and his kingdom is coming. So there is this anticipation of this uh, future aspect of his kingdom that he's waiting for. All right, now as we look at this, as we talk about this idea of this casting fire on earth and wood that it were already kindled, I want us to take a look at, at a passage from 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. I feel like 2 Peter chapter 3 uh, could really just run parallel to Luke chapter 12. And there's this, this part of me that wants to just stop and do a whole sermon on uh, 2 Peter chapter 3 and keep you guys here forever, but I'm not going to do that. Um, instead, I just am going to have us look at verses 4 through 10. Verses 4 through 10 of 2 Peter chapter 3. Now, this is the Apostle Peter talking, re, uh, writing this letter, and he is writing this letter years after the earthly ministry of Jesus. What does he say, starting in verse 4? They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and through 
water by the word of God. And by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Verse 6 is talking about the flood of Noah. Verse 7. By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Do you see how well that fits right in with what we're talking about is from last week's passage as we looked at Luke 12 and, and talked about the, 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 the master coming home and finding these servants, some faithful, some unfaithful? Verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And how did we see it would come? earlier in chapter 12, like a thief. It's like Peter was here and he heard this teaching of Jesus and then somehow it comes out in his letter later. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on them will be exposed. Now, 2 Peter tells us two things that we can't lose track of. The first thing that we need to see in 2 Peter chapter 3 is that God waits to send the fires of judgment so that we have an opportunity for repentance. Why does he wait? He waits for the opportunity for repentance. So we should not see God as being slow. We should see him as being patient. Big difference. Big difference. It is not slow, as some understand slowness. It is patient. This is a huge distinction. The second thing we need to see is that the time for judgment, destruction, and fire is now. It's now. That's why he's being patient. If he wasn't being patient and waiting then the fire would come because that's what we deserve. So when we see Jesus say, I came to cast fire on the earth, we should, we should see that, that that's what the coming of the kingdom brings. That is unpleasant to consider. But Jesus implies patience, as he said, and would that it were already kindled, meaning Oh, it's time for fire. But it's not quite hot in here. Okay? There is, it's time, but not yet. He is slow, but not as we understand slowness. He is patient. God waits and is patient so that more and more may have time to repent and believe. The imagery that Peter uses helps us see the big picture. God created our world first out of nothing, but then, as we see in the creation story, he draws the land up out of the chaos of the sea. And then God sent judgment on the earth, right, through that very sea. And that's how he flooded the world back with Noah. Then what did God do? He restored the earth. He destroyed it, and then he 
restored it. Now, there is a new judgment coming. And the new judgment is different. Where the first judgment was with water, and the same earth was restored, there is a judgment coming in fire. And that judgment is going to be complete. And that destruction is going to be complete. But just like there was a new creation after the flood, there will be a new creation after this destruction in fire. But it's going to be that much greater. As much as the destruction with fire is greater than the destruction with water, the new creation that's coming after this destruction is greater than the new creation that came after the flood. We are another of the same kind that came after the flood. What is coming next after the destruction of the world is another of something different. What we will experience on this new creation is something that defies the old order of things. So the destruction itself is a pledge of something new. Chew on that. The destruction itself is the pledge of something new. Let me see, let me see if I can, I can give you guys just a visual picture. Let's say that we as Jefferson Avenue Baptist Church decided we needed a new sanctuary. Right after we paid off that gym, let's build a new sanctuary, right? Uh, so so what, do we, what do we do? It needs to be at the corner of Jefferson and Sunshine. How are we going to build a new sanctuary? We've got to knock the old one down. The destruction of the old is the sign of the building of the new. So as we think about this idea of destruction, of fire, it goes parallel, it goes parallel with the building of something new. The judgment of this world runs parallel to its recreation. One will perish and God will remake it. So when we see Jesus' eagerness for the fire to come, we should see that eagerness rooted in two realities. Okay? First, there is the judgment that he's bringing that brings justice to the oppressed and the abused. God's judgment on sin brings justice to the oppressed and the abused. Jesus wants to uh, liberate the captives. So the captors have to be destroyed. His heart longs to protect his little ones. So we just read in the previous section, right? He has a protective heart. So how is he going to protect them? He's going to destroy the enemy. So we should see this eagerness as protective, as God the Father, as God the Son, coming to the aid of his little children. Second, the judgment comes before the new creation, and he is eager to give good gifts to his children. What did, what, did we, what did we see last week as we looked at the master coming home? What did he do? He clothed himself like one of the servants so that he could serve those who were faithfully watching for him. Okay? So when we think about this idea of this judgment that's coming, we should see it as Jesus' eagerness to give good gifts to his 
children. So he waits for the day when he can give us what he has promised. This is why Jesus says that that he comes to bring fire and that he wishes the time was ready to bring that fire in full to the earth because that fire is protection for the oppressed. That fire is protection for the oppressed and the fire is provision for his children in the coming of the kingdom. That fire is provision for his children in the coming of the kingdom. Now what happens next? Let's look at verse 50. Verse 50 says, this is Jesus speaking, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. This verse here is huge. In in my mind, if you read verse 49 without verse 50, you you start to think of Jesus as maybe a little bloodthirsty, and maybe even you view him as a little too punitive in his approach to what's going on here. But, But verse 50 Verse 50 holds the reins of verse 49. So as we look at verse 49 and this idea of of Jesus coming to be uh, with fire and and how he wishes it was kindled already, we need to see verse 50 here as holding the reins of that verse. So imagine a horse and Jesus being able to guide it, direct it, slow it, and that's verse 50 here. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. How great is my distress until it is accomplished. All right, how is the fire of judgment brought to be? How is the fire of judgment brought to be? It comes through the mission of Jesus. Because this is why we have to study a book as a whole, okay? Jesus already told us his mission. He told us his mission back in Luke chapter 22. Oops, not back in chapter 9, verse 22. There we go, chapter 9, verse 22. In verse 22, Jesus said this. He says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. What's his mission? His mission is his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus had already told us what his baptism would be. He's not talking about a water baptism here. This is not about John the Baptist. He's talking about the wrath of God that's going to be poured out. And where's it going to be poured out first? It's going to be poured out first on him. He is talking about his own death. His death and his following resurrection is how he defeats the enemies of the kingdom of God. His suffering is the path to victory. So we need to see and understand that Jesus bore on his shoulders the wrath of God. The judgment that would be poured out on all the earth was first poured across his hands and his feet as he hung on the cross. Where did that fire start? It started with him taking the punishment that we deserved. Do you see why verse 50 holds the reins to verse 49. I love the way Hebrews chapter, uh, chapter 10 describes this. Starting in verse 12, Hebrews 10 says it this way. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting. You see that idea, patience, waiting? It's everywhere. 
waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest, Jesus Christ himself, over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. That's what he is calling for as he's laying this out for us in Luke chapter 12. Now what's interesting is Luke chapter 9 verse 51 tells us that Jesus had his face set toward Jerusalem. His face was set toward Jerusalem. So when Jesus says that he has a baptism to be baptized with, we should understand that Jesus knew from that time that his face was on Jerusalem toward the cross and that the time of the cross was getting closer and closer. His distress was great because he was getting closer and closer to the day of his sacrifice. Now listen, much like the fire of judgment brings good for the faithful servant and destruction for the unfaithful servant, listen, listen here. The baptism of Jesus into his physical death brings him great physical and spiritual pain, but it brings life for us as his death took our place. And his resurrection gives us new life in him. Do you see how these two ideas go hand in hand? His death and resurrection are how Jesus would make all things new. As he experienced the suffering, the judgment, that is the avenue for life for us in his resurrection. This is how he makes all things new. It's in the context of Jesus explaining that he is bringing the fire of judgment and the baptism of his own sacrificial death that Jesus gives us the next sentence, which seems quite odd in light of things that we have discussed over the last couple of weeks. So what does he say next in verse 51? He says, do you think I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. But what have we been talking about for like the last four weeks? How we can have peace in Christ. How we can have peace and and not have anxiety. He tells us not to be anxious. And and then we have this odd verse that kind of drives me crazy. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? I tell you, no. Prince of Peace, though, right? He's, he's supposed to be, bring peace on earth. He says, no. I tell you, not peace, rather division. And this is where things get very interesting. 
Jesus is calling us, he's calling everybody who hears him, he's calling everybody in general to make a decision about him. And when we make a decision, we will divide from those who make the opposite decision. A decision is division. So we have to answer the question that Jesus is forcing us to ask. Is he the Messiah? Is he the Savior? Is he the Son of God? Is he the authority on earth? Is he the King? Is he really bringing his kingdom? Guys, his kingdom is coming. Whether you're watching for it or not, it is coming. It's coming like a thief in the night. So we have to make a decision about it now. We cannot wait. There is urgency in this decision making. He is coming to save. He is coming to deliver. He is coming to protect and provide for those who are his. But in the same motion that saves and delivers, he also brings judgment on those who oppose him. And if you are not for him, you are against him. That's what it says earlier in Luke in verse 23. And once we make that decision, we need to understand that being united with Christ puts us at odds with all who disagree. To make it clear, if you haven't heard it enough times already, to make a decision is to divide. And since there is no middle ground, then to make a decision to say that Jesus is your Savior is to make the decision to be all in. It is the decision to be all in. How all in? How all in? A decision to follow Jesus as Messiah, as Savior and King, who is bringing his kingdom, is to put all other allegiances underneath that one primary belief. Everything else is secondary. That is the number one thing. When we draw that kind of a line, we draw away from all other allegiances. That's why Jesus says this next in verses 52 through 53. In case you're wondering, how, how much division? It's not just about from your nation. It's not just about from your neighbors. How close to home does it get? Verses 52 through 53. From now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, Mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. How much allegiance does he demand? If he really is the savior of the world, If you really believe that, if you really believe he's the Son of God, if you really believe this is the way to have forgiveness of your sins, if you really believe this is the way to have eternal life, then everything else is secondary. Because this is it. This is ultimate. Everything in this world passes away, but what thing remains forever? God, heaven, eternity. So anything in this world is secondary. It's all down low. Now, when you see this, though, when you see it written down here, what kind of division we could have, 
We could have division from our parents. We could be isolated. We could be alone. Does that not, like, bring some anxiety? Does that not make, make you go, oh, my goodness, what am I supposed to do? Didn't Jesus just tell us not to be anxious? Here's what I love about what he's doing. For the last 40 plus verses, Jesus has been preparing us for this moment. He's been preparing us for this moment. He's been saying, guys, if this is where your treasure is, this is where your heart will be also. But your treasure is supposed to be in eternity. Your treasure is supposed to be set on Christ, the Savior of your soul, the forgiver of your sins, the one who bought you with his own blood, the one who bore the judgment and wrath of God on his own shoulders in your place. That is where your focus should be. And if that is where your focus is, then anything else, any other troubles in this world should seem mild. That doesn't mean they're not troubles. That doesn't mean they don't hurt. That doesn't mean they're not real. It does mean they're not ultimate, and it does mean they're not permanent. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. He says, Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Now what's he say? Verse 16, so we do not lose heart, so we do not worry, so we are not anxious, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this what? Light, momentary affliction is preparing us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're here today and gone tomorrow. They're passing. They're temporary. But the things that are unseen are eternal. As followers of Christ who are all in, we can look at this physical world, we can look at this physical life as something that is wasting away. But in our inner self, our souls are being renewed day by day in Christ Jesus, prepared for eternity. So he, he did not come to be, bring peace on earth. He came to bring peace for eternity. He came to be, bring peace between us and him. A peace that will last. This world is passing away. If you don't believe me, turn on the news the motion toward this world is toward destruction. And eventually what we're going to see is God turn this world over to its destruction. And as God's judgment comes, it comes to rescue, to rescue his little flock. It brings him pleasure 
to give us the kingdom. Do you see how this all fits together? It is his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He is preparing a place for you. This world is temporary. And so we can have peace now because we made a decision. That decision is to be all in for Jesus. That decision alienates us from those who make the other decision. It puts us at odds with them. It costs us. But we have peace with it because we're committed to it. We're true believers. We know it's right. And since we know it's right, who cares about everything else? We can have peace because we have perspective. As we, as we close today and we think about what it is, what it is to have peace with God, it starts with a decision. My, my dad, who was pastor here for two plus decades, used to end almost every single sermon the same way. He would say, before you leave here today, you will have made a decision. And I love that. I intentionally stopped saying it because he said it all the time. But it was still such a great sentence. We all make a decision. To not make a decision is a decision. If you are not for me, you're against me. So as we sing this last song, we have an opportunity to respond. Are we ready to make a decision? If you are a believer here today and you've already placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I want you to ask yourself what it means to be all in. Where am I hedging? What am I protecting? How am I still expressing my, uh, my, my love for things of earth where my heart is not set on on the things above. It's time to confess those things to the Lord. If you're here today and you've been waiting, waiting to make a decision, then I want to challenge you with this. Indecision, when it comes to Christ, is a decision. It's time. It's time to say, I'm ready. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe he died in my place for my sins and I'm trusting him for my salvation and I'm turning away from my old life and following him. If that's you today, then you can come and you can find me and pray with me or you can find a believer that's next to you and, and pray with them, but our church would love to hear. We'd love to stand with you united, united in faith in Jesus Christ. However God is working in your hearts today, as we sing these songs, now is the time. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you and praise you. We love you, Lord. We ask that you would work in the hearts of, of the people that are here today. Help us, Lord, to have peace. Help us to see what you are accomplishing. Help us, Lord, not to be wrapped up in the troubles of this world, but to have our eyes firmly set on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, we, uh, we, we trust you in all things. It's in your name we pray. Amen. As we sing, the altar is also open for any other needs that you may have. Whatever you're going through in your life, this is the time we set aside in our service to just cast your cares before the Lord. Let's sing.